Welcome to the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast. I'm Sherrod DeGrippo. Ever wanted to step into the shadowy realm of digital espionage, cybercrime, social engineering, fraud? Well, each week, dive deep with us into the underground. Come here for Microsoft's elite threat intelligence researchers. Join us as we decode mysteries, expose hidden adversaries, and shape the future of cybersecurity. It might get a little weird, but don't worry. I'm your guide to the back alleys of the threat landscape. Welcome to the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast. I have two fantastic Microsoft Threat Intelligence Analysts, security researchers, APT-focused, Matthew Kennedy and Greg Schlomer. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you guys doing? Doing great. Thanks for having us, Sherrod. Super excited to be here and talk North Korea. Thanks so much for having us. Looking forward to chatting a little bit more about this fun world that we research every day of kind of the North Korean cyber operations. Well, as I was telling you guys earlier, DPRK was a special request. We got some listener feedback that they wanted DPRK specialists, specifically you two, (laughs) and they wanted to hear like what's going on with North Korea, which I'll let you guys dig in, but I've always felt like North Korea was kind of a weird outlier in that larger, kind of like that big four category that we think of with China, Russia, Iran. North Korea is weird. So like, Greg, can you give us some of the breakdowns of like, what makes it so strange? Yeah, well, first of all, I want to say, you know, often in the big four, North Korea doesn't get a ton of love, right? So I just want to say thank you to those fans we have out there yes. who, are, who, are, who are asking for us to talk a little bit more because there's a lot of cool stuff going on in North Korea. Yeah, I think there are a lot of things that, that make North Korea unique. Some of the big things are, you know, they're really persistent. They put the P in APT. Okay. They aren't afraid to, to try new things. They aren't always the most sophisticated, but they get the job done. They're really a, a persistent and continually evolving threat. And they also are sort of this weird mix of APT and cybercrime. A huge part of what the North Koreans are doing these days is revenue generation, cryptocurrency theft. So often when we think APT, we think strictly, you know, intel collection and espionage. But North Korea really brings in that cybercrime angle as well as a huge part of what they do. Yeah. Yeah, I think I would add to that something that I find really interesting about the North Korean uh, cyber operations ecospace is that they really just have a a mantra of kind of being hustlers. Like they're scrappy, they're persistent, they're always kind of evolving. And I just think that's really unique sometimes when we think about classically kind of the big four and what sets North Korea apart. It's it's really, to me, it's a, it's a different mantra even about how they approach their cyber operations and the way that they take a fundamentally different view of how cyber operations enables the goals of the regime compared to some of the other big four. I think that a lot of people that track this stuff kind of, like, let's talk Lazarus for a little bit. People really got hooked on Lazarus. And what do you think it was specifically about that particular group, the campaigns that they did, why did they capture the attention of kind of the industry and people that did APT work? What was special about them? Mm, that's a great question. Greg, curious to hear your perspective too. I think for me, probably one of the things that's really unique about Lazarus or kind of one of the groups we would call uh, Diamond Sleet is kind of the 
primary cluster, which we think of kind of the historical Sony Pictures attack in 2014. Then you have WannaCry in 2017, continuing on to today where we have kind of supply chain compromises. I think what started out as so interesting about that group is they really were one of the first kind of nation states to really kind of cross a line into a very provocative action and kind of what they were doing with Sony Pictures and that Sony Pictures historically had created the movie The Interview, which the North Korean regime was not a fan of and proceeded to target Sony Pictures in response to their movie. And I think that really captured our attention because the idea of a private American company creating a movie or a satire of a geopolitical situation really elicited a government response towards this private company. And I think from that moment in 2014, something was different about how the North Korean cyber operations would operate over the next decade and even to what we see today. I think that was a key moment when something clicked in people's mind that like something might be different here. That's really interesting, too. And you mentioning 2014, I can't believe it's been basically 10 years since the interview came out, which was Seth Rogen and James Franco just being, it was very satirical. Like, coming from any Western culture, you could watch that movie and see very clearly it's satirical, but I guess perhaps in a way that the regime was not super fond of. Greg, why do you think Diamond's leader, Lazarus, captured so much attention from the industry and from security researchers. Yeah, I think, you know, this this Sony Pictures incident really, like, brought North Korean cyber to the main stage, right? The interview was a popular movie. When we think about, like, garnering attention even beyond the security industry, much of state-sponsored cyber activity is targeting of the defense industrial base, targeting of government agencies. Like, those are things that Honestly, the common person doesn't care a lot about. But now it's like suddenly there's this, this popular movie that has been released and we have North Korean hackers carrying out an attack against a well-known company in response to a well-known movie. So it like opened up the whole world of state-sponsored cyber activity for so many people. Um, and I think that's why Lazarus really caught the world by storm, both you know, regular people who aren't in the cyber industry and also security professionals. So that's why they've captured the attention. What have they been up to lately? So I know we released a blog a little bit ago about Diamond Sleet. I know we've put out bulletins here and there. What's the focus for Diamond Sleet in the past six months or so? What have they been doing? Maybe this is a great time to talk a little bit about our blog and, you know, some of the most recent stuff. So back in November, we released a blog on some Diamond Sleet activity. TLDR, Diamond Sleet carried out a software supply chain attack against a company called Cyberlink. Um, and so Diamond Sleet actually added some malicious code to a, a multimedia application that Cyberlink developed. And what's really interesting about this activity is, you know, this wasn't completely unexpected from Diamond Sleet. In 2022, they sort of started this trend of weaponizing open source software. So they would take software applications that had, you know, open source code out there for the public to access, and they would add malicious code to that application. Putty was one example of a program that they weaponized. And then they would send the malicious Putty version to a target and say, hey, 
you know, I need you to connect to the server for me. And then the victim would run the software and, and get infected. So this CyberLink incident represented sort of an evolution of everything that worked with the weaponizing open source software. So we saw, you know, this is no longer open source software. This is actually a, a proprietary application produced by CyberLink. This CyberLink malicious application was actually signed. So Diamond Sleet stole a code signing certificate from CyberLink and signed the malware. There was also a lot of like cool anti-reversing things that they added in this CyberLink malware. They were looking for like certain EDR programs. The malware would actually only run on Tuesdays at 11 o'clock. So it was like they took all the things that went wrong with the activity in 2022 and fixed all those things. And, you know, you think about like CyberLink is used all over the world. So it was a perfect opportunity for them to have global reach and spread their malware to users all over the world. That's amazing that they went back and did like, essentially, it sounds like quality control in the operation and fixed, basically like fixed the issues. They did bug fixes for their whole operation. That's pretty cool. Matthew, you want to you want to expand on that a little bit in terms of the the stuff you've seen lately? Yeah, definitely. I think one other group that has really caught my attention over the past 18 months or so would be Jade Sleet. That's a, a group that the U.S. government has also dubbed Trader Trader. What's significant about this group is they've stolen billions of dollars. Uh, even more recently, I think TRM said that in 2023, a third of all stolen crypto was stolen by the North Korean regime. That's over $700 million. And so this is a fascinating group because they are using a lot of the techniques that they've learned over the past decade, and they're using new techniques as well as, as abusing trust relationships and moving downstream into victim environments to pull off wildly successful crypto jackpotting at a lot of these cryptocurrency exchanges that you've heard that have been breached over the past year. And I think this group is is fascinating because, one, just because of the fact that it's working, right? At a certain level, to pull off billions of dollars in theft uh, shows that you're doing something right. And so I think as we have kind of tracked this group uh, more closely as they've continued to be successful, we've seen they're doing a lot of novel things. And the sophistication of this operation and this group has been very high. It's been one of the ones that has really stood out to us as a group that is leveraging cutting-edge TTPs. Most notably, over the past year, we track uh, the Circle CI breach as well as the Jump Cloud breach that were both reported by those companies as attributable to Jade Sleet, which they leveraged to move downstream into victim environments. And so maybe a little bit different definition of what you might think of like a software supply chain attack, similar to CyberLink, but unique in the sense that they're abusing that trusted relationship from a supplier to a customer. And so, I, you know, I think this group is really fascinating because it continues to show that North Korea is evolving in the ways that they're conducting operations and they're proving to be wildly successful in how they do it. That is so interesting because one of the questions that we actually got in from a fellow researcher at another organization, Greg Lesnowich, shout out to Greg. Yeah, he's a good friend. So one of the questions that he actually sent in was, give us kind of an idea of what allowed DPRK to become a second tier, or excuse me, a first tier APT actor from that second tier. Because 
both of you at this point have said earlier a second ago, Greg was like, they put the P in persistent. And that is just such a like great little bullet point to put beside them. What are some other things that you feel like reflect how these operations have matured from the groups coming out of North Korea? Yeah, I think one thing that really stands out for both of us when we think about, you know, why North Korea has sort of made this jump from from second tier to first tier is just that they really adopt this mindset of evolution as opposed to revolution. So we've seen, you know, we talked about Sony Pictures back in 2014. There are elements of what they did in that attack that are still used today. They very much have like a don't reinvent the wheel philosophy. Operation Dream Job, you know, targeting of the defense industrial base from uh, Diamond Sleet. That playbook is still used today. There have been drastic improvements since it first came about. But just this, this ability for all the North Korean groups to figure out what works and make subtle changes over time as opposed to completely reinventing the wheel, I think that is really what has allowed them to mature and level up to where they are today. Matt, do you have anything you'd add to that? Yeah, thanks, Craig. I would just echo what you said there. And, and maybe even if we can learn a little bit of a life a lesson from North Korean cyber operations, it's that sometimes the slow, faithful progression is more effective in the long term than trying to create a spark or a revolution. And really, I think that's what we've seen from North Korean cyber operations going back over a decade. Um, you know, how did they get here to where they're at today? Well, it's from incremental changes. Even, even as Greg highlighted a little bit earlier about the way that Diamond Sleet started by weaponizing open source software, they figured out how to make that work. And then what did they do? They leveled up and they said, let's go impact code bases and conduct software supply chain compromises. But that didn't come out of nowhere. That came after years of perfecting how to weaponize open source software. And so I think that's really unique in that they are persistent and they are getting better every day rather than trying to create a spark and conduct a revolution in their operations. That's really interesting. So... Something that I've kind of picked up from, you know, talking about this now is it sounds like they've got broad TTPs in terms of how they do like first contact because I know they use email. We've seen them where else. You said software supply chain. I think they've used some social media tactics as well. What else have they done that kind of gives them that broad spectrum, you know, sort of jack of all trades on the TTPs? I think it's really that they do all of those things mm. at the same time, right? It's they don't adopt a philosophy of like, okay, well, you know, phishing is is the way we do things. If phishing certain subsets of their their victim base works, why change it? If you know, reaching out to to victims on LinkedIn with potential job opportunities works, then why reinvent it? On top of some of those, you know, social engineering techniques, we do see some more CNO type exploitation activity from a lot of groups. We see exploitation of in-day vulnerabilities that have been publicly disclosed. We see a couple of groups that are actually developing novel zero days. Anything and everything in terms of initial access is on the table for North Korean groups. And I think that's that's what helps them be successful in their broad targeting scope. You think they're developing those zero days? Or are they buying them? That is a very good question. Matt, any thoughts there? Yeah. 
That's a good question. I think by and large, one thing that we have noted is that we haven't seen a ton of evidence of North Korean cyber operators having larger or consistent relationships with the cybercrime ecospace kind of within Eurasia. So at some level, I do think they are developing these capabilities, but I wouldn't put it out of the realm of possibility that they do have uh, connections that could enable them to procure zero days. But I wouldn't say that those relationships exist at scale or would be indicative of a larger connection to the larger cybercrime ecosystem. Okay, interesting, because I know that we typically say, like, with Russia-based threat actor groups, that there's a lot of overlap there between cybercrime, and then we see, you know, TTP overlap, too, right? Like, we see them using off-the-shelf crimeware malware in, you know, various back and forth between the two different sides, and typically, potentially some of the same people doing some of the same tactics, whether they're doing it for personal crime reasons or they're doing it in their kind of day job at, at government work. So it sounds like DPRK doesn't really have that breadth of that broad scope across the two pillars. I want to ask, though, because this is my favorite. Like, you know I'm a crime. I like the crimes. But here's my question, right? This is what we want to really dig in on. Man, they steal a lot of cryptocurrency over there. So kind of help me and the audience understand, like, it's state-sponsored but it's state-sponsored with a heavy focus on currency collection. So can you sort of like walk us through what some of the points of that are and, and like what that means in terms of differentiation? What's the, the goals there? How does that work? Matt, I'll start with you. Like what's up with this cryptocurrency situation with North Korea? Yeah, that's a great question. I think one of the things is kind of how we touched on earlier that kind of early on, North Korea learned that they could utilize cyber operations to accomplish uh, the strategic goals of the regime. And one unique goal that they have is that revenue generation, right? And, and as sanctions have been levied against the regime, the need to generate revenue has become an increasing priority. And so what they have found is that they can also use their cyber operations to meet that goal. And we see this going back to 2016 with the Bangladesh bank heist, where they had stolen almost a billion dollars. Uh, one flag prevented it from going through that ultimately only led to a, a theft of $81 million. But they quickly learned in 2016 that, oh, we can also generate significant revenue using cybercrime, but under the goal of supporting the state. And so I think, again, they have leveraged that understanding of how to target financial entities and how to abuse trust in the financial system for their benefit. And I think particularly with the emergence of cryptocurrencies, that has only increased as I think of a lot of these crypto companies probably do not have the level of processes or security that an international bank may have. And so it's proven for them to be a fertile ground for targets that they could compromise. And, and it's worked really, really well. I also think one thing that's unique about the way that they're stealing cryptocurrency is kind of the way that the whole model operates in the sense that if you look within kind of the Eurasian uh, kind of cybercrime ecospace, you tend to have access brokers and, and there's handoffs and there's this personal relationship. And you really have this like map of just like 
relationships all over the place because it's really, in, in some sense, it doesn't cluster in the same way that we think of APT. But I think what's different about the North Korean state is that really the whole operation from stealing the money and then to kind of cashing out the revenue all happens in-house. And so that doesn't mean that they don't use people outside of the country to enable what they need when they need it. But by and large, it's different in that it tends to be managed fully in-house. And that makes it different than what we see from other cyber criminal gangs traditionally that, that Microsoft might follow. So they've amassed, like I read in the Microsoft Digital Defense Report that with um, Harmony Bridge, Jade Sleet stole almost a billion dollars of cryptocurrency. It's the volumes of money is insane. So there has to be some aspect of once they get that amount of cryptocurrency, what's next? And Matt, kind of give us that understanding because this isn't something that we normally talk of in these volumes, especially with a nation-sponsored actor. Yeah, for sure. I, I think one thing, historically, when you think about a bank robbery, you, you may think of someone walking out with the cold, hard cash that they can then use. What's a little bit different in cryptocurrency theft that the, the North Koreans have accomplished is that once they've stolen it and they've gotten it to their wallets, that's the first part of the puzzle. The second part of the puzzle is how do you launder that money and eventually get to cash out to where you can turn cryptocurrency into local fiat that they can use to support the regime. And so I think from our perspective, uh, we, we tend to see a lot of uh, government partners across the globe really trying to develop relationships within the financial industry that are helping to prevent the money laundering and the fraud that enables the cash out. And so that's a key piece in the deterrence of this these operations is really if, if one, if, if on our end, we can stop the compromises from happening in the first place, that's ideal. But even if, if that wasn't successful, can you stop the cash out? And really, that's the key piece of the money laundering that gets back into even whole different lanes of thinking around accounting, around following the money and using that skill set, but on the blockchain to follow how it is that they're laundering money so that you may be able to complicate or disrupt their ability to cash out. Interesting. So I want to ask you both, how much work have you put into becoming blockchain and cryptocurrency experts in your day job? Greg, how much are you working on that blockchain? Yeah, I'm going to be honest. I, I probably should do it more. And I say that because, you know, revenue generation and crypto theft has really become a priority for almost every group we track. Like, it's pretty rare these days to see a group that is not in some way supporting the revenue generation front. Yeah, I, I definitely could do some more learning and, and understanding of blockchain technology. Like Matt said, you know, our job is to try to stop the intrusion in the first place. And so I do take some pride in, in feeling like we do a pretty good job of staying on top of the, the latest TTPs and, and malware that they're using to break into these financial entities in the first place. Yeah, I think from my perspective, I'm almost too close to tracking the thefts to, to be able to trust uh, the cryptocurrency ecosystem. So I tend to, to stay away. Maybe I've uh, just been burned too many times tracking these thefts. You know, over the past couple of years with ransomware coming up and then, you know, North Korea being so focused on cryptocurrency, 
I've learned more about it than I really ever wanted to. And um, something that I remember very vividly was a couple years ago watching some, I, I can't remember the exact group, but it was a North Korean actor going after the exchanges themselves. So going after cryptocurrency exchanges, wallet holders, and forums, basically with the intent of getting even closer to the bigger money. And I was researching these exchanges, and I'm and I'm like, wow, this seems really, these exchanges themselves seem quite shady. And now, going a couple of years later, we've seen two arrests of exchange and broker CEOs. So it's pretty interesting to see how those two things kind of interact with each other. But I definitely learned a majority of maybe all of what I know about cryptocurrency and blockchain because of what threat actors are doing with it. So let's talk a little bit about, like, from the perspective of a defender. You've got stuff you want to protect. It sounds like DPRK loves some software supply chain. What are the kinds of things that organizations should be considering when thinking about how to defend themselves from this particular group of actors? Yeah, that's a really good question, Shared. And, you know, unfortunately, this is a really, really challenging problem to solve. It sort of challenges a lot of the assumptions we've made about trust for the entire history of computing. Just because a, a software application comes from a trusted publisher and is signed, you know, that's no longer enough for us to trust the integrity and the security of, of that application. So increasingly, you know, we're seeing North Korean threat actors abuse that trust more and more in software supply chain attacks and targeting of IT service providers to, to move downstream and um, compromise their customers. And so, you know, for us at Microsoft, we've really, really been leaning forward on mitigation of this activity. So following the 3CX supply chain compromise in la uh, last year, you know, we sort of set out as a team to be much more aggressive in finding and responding to these supply chain attacks. So as soon as we can uncover the activity, um, we're proactively deploying protections for our customers to, to stop that activity in its tracks as quickly as possible. And that's just because, you know, a, a software supply chain attack of a legitimate application can truly affect the entire world, right? You're no longer depending on a phishing email that you have to persuade a target to go and open and interact with, you're actually abusing the fact that your target inherently trusts something. And so, yeah, we're we're really just trying to be aggressive in how we can protect customers from those threats, um, not only in, you know, product protections, but also in just getting out context, you know, like the blog from November with the Cyberlink activity, the more we can provide awareness and context around this type of activity from North Korean actors, ultimately, the the better prepared defenders will be to respond to these threats. Matt, anything you want to add to that? Any tips you want to add for um, organizations that need to worry about this? Yeah, I would just echo what Greg said and in, in that this is a really difficult problem to solve. Being a former defender, I know that a lot of the solutions uh, that are crafted in theory are very, very difficult to implement uh, practically. And so I think it's all the things, though. It's, it's log monitoring. It's endpoint solutions. It's doing all of the things today in the cybersecurity suite of tools and processes and capabilities that 
we have available to us as defenders. And, and I don't think it's necessarily one thing that helps us solve this problem. I think it's a holistic security program that helps us to be able to respond when these incidents of trust are broken from a supplier to a customer and there's downstream actions. And so I think it just echoes uh, the need for resilient cybersecurity defenses. Got it. Let me kind of switch gears a little bit to what you really like working on and kind of, I want to ask Greg and Matt, I'll ask you too, why do you do North Korea? Like, why would you pick that? Yeah, so when I first joined the team, I actually worked China for about a year. Um, And I, I had an opportunity to switch over to North Korea and took it with quite a bit of excitement about, you know, what the threat landscape brings. I think the thing that I really enjoy, frankly, is that a lot of people don't care about North Korea and they they sort of aren't looking. They're sleeping on North Korea, right? We always say like, don't sleep on North Korea. A lot of people are sleeping on North Korea. And as a result, there is a lot of opportunity for North Korean security researchers to find really cool stuff, right? When China does something new, the entire security industry is looking. But you know, we're we're one of a few teams in the industry who is hyper-focused on North Korea. So when they do something new and novel, I have an opportunity to be one of the first people in the world to to find that and to understand it and to tell the world about it, which is really cool. Okay, so last question about North Korea. What do you think we're going to see there coming out of their future campaigns, what the actors are going to be doing? Greg, I'll start with you. What do you think's on the horizon for them? Yeah, I think the big thing looking forward for North Korea will be just continuing to abuse these chains of trust. Over the last few months, we've seen uh, several more actors get in on the supply chain compromise uh, train. I don't see any sign of that stopping anytime soon. They're going to continue stealing code signing certs. They're going to you know, continue leveraging signed code as a means of infiltrating um, some of the security measures that we've had in place for years. We talked a little bit about, you know, compromising IT service providers, moving downstream. Um, that's something that we've seen be particularly effective for for some of our groups, um, especially Ruby Sleet. And as we've talked about, you know, this idea of evolving and sharing what works, I think this will be another sort of shared TTP, shared playbook that we'll see demonstrated across numerous North Korean actors. Matt, anything you'd, you'd add to that? I don't think so. I think you crushed it. That was a great answer. <laughs> that was a great answer, Greg. Matt, also a great answer. Very good. Always good to defer to a fellow expert. All right, so let's say they tell you Big Boss comes down is like, hey, you can't do North Korea anymore. You can do any other thing you want, including crime. What do you pick? I would actually like to go to, to the cybercrime side. Yeah. The guys and gals working over there are crushing it. And I just love, they're all brilliant. I love the way they, they do their work. I love the way they think. And I think the, the threat landscape is just so interesting and, and so different than what we often see in APT space. All right, Matt, what got you on North Korea? Yeah, that's a funny story. I don't, I don't think I've told the story too many times, but when I was early on in my career, the first ever group that I was tracking was the group we call Emerald Sleet or kind of Thallium Kimsuki. And the first APT email that I ever mitigated was it had an e- it had a link in the email 
to compromised infrastructure. And I was so excited because I blocked this email and I'm digging on the email that I just uh, mitigated. And I look and uh, the next stage domain is actually to an alpaca farm that was compromised that happened to be a mile from the home that I grew up in. And from that moment, I was just like, okay, this is this is just meant to be. This hits too close to home. And so, you know, years ago, that little uh, alpaca farm kind of was the first hook into the North Korea cyber actor tracking, and I kind of never let it go. And, and since then, I've just loved the ride to kind of continue tracking all that they're doing. And, and as Greg said, they do a lot of really, really novel things that don't inherently maybe get the attention that other regions may get. And I think that's part of a superpower for them. And I love uh, following their activity and trying to mitigate their activity when we're able to. So same question for you. Let's say it's taken off the table. Where do you go? Oh, that's tough. You know, I have so many colleagues that are doing amazing work and finding just really novel, really exciting work. I think one area that I'm really interested in is particularly China. And I think uh, kind of China activity is a strategic challenge in scale. There's so much activity that it it is really challenging to prioritize, to choose what to focus on and, and what to pour your resources into. And I think that problem kind of is, is really interesting to me. Got it. So I'm really glad that you guys were able to come on the podcast and tell us about North Korea. And I hope, you know, we can continue to have regular updates on what's going on with North Korea you know, as we continue doing the podcast, I'm really hoping that we can we can get that done. We have a lot of incredible people at Microsoft that work on all these different things, but I really hope that I can have both of you back to tell us more P and persistent coming out of DPRK. We would love that. Awesome. Thanks so much for having us. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for listening to the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Email us with your ideas at tipodcast at microsoft.com. Every episode will decode the threat landscape and arm you with the intelligence you need to take on threat actors. Check us out, msthreatintelpodcast.com for more and subscribe on your favorite podcast app.